Our Father in heaven, what a gracious God you are. We thank you for the gifts that you give to your church, spiritual gifts, talents, and abilities. We thank you for the privilege of using them to serve others. As we open your word this morning, we look at it, the introduction to Revelation. We pray that your spirit would speak to us as individuals and to us as a church family. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in case you're new to our church or you're visiting or you haven't been here recently, we have been doing a series for some time on explaining the meaning of the stained glass windows that surround the top of our church. And we began in 2012. We did the beginning with the creation to the fall, the Ten Commandments, and the birth of, of Christ. In 2013, we have done the life and ministry of Jesus, Jesus as the word and light of life, the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And today, we begin we begin a series on the church, the church. And as we were thinking about the church, we thought, how do we use the word to talk about the church? And we thought what we would do is use the seven churches of Revelation. Now, let me just give a, a little disclaimer at the very beginning. There's no way in five sermons we can cover in depth, every single church and its meaning. It's impossible. So we're going to give some broad pictures and allow you and hopefully encourage you to go and study some things for yourself. And I'm going to hold up a book that I prize highly. It is no longer in print. I'm not even sure how I got this book. I do know how I got it. I just remembered. I'd forgotten the former dean of the seminary, when I was in seminary, Thomas Blinko gave it to me. And that's one of the reasons why it's a prized possession. He got it from Arthur Thiele, who's a famous theologian in the Adventist history. But this book by Taylor Bunch is called The Seven Epistles of the Church. You cannot buy it. However, I have a digital copy of it. And as we go through this, after we talk about a church, we'll be posting the digital copy of the chapter from this book. So you'll have the opportunity to study it in depth for yourself. Just promise you won't be too critical of us as we try and give the broad picture, okay? But be that as it may, we're going to look at the seven churches. But before we look at the seven churches, we really need, we really need to have an introduction to the book of Revelation and look at the introduction that Jesus himself gave for the seven churches, the letter to the seven churches. Now, there are four views of Revelation that theologians and, and those who study the book have. Uh, the first one is, is the idea of historicism. Historicism is a view in Christian eschatology that teaches that the Bible indeed has predictions that are being fulfilled throughout history and continue to be fulfilled today. It considers the book of Revelation as a, is a prophesied history of the church from the time of the writing of the book of Revelation right up until Jesus comes again. Right up until the second advent of Christ. At which time shall be ushered in a new heaven and a new earth. It was largely the view of the reformers. 
and it has been largely the view of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It takes much of what is in Revelation as symbolic and not literal. The second view of Revelation is that called preterism. Preterism is a view of es Christian eschatology that holds that some or all of the prophecies, including Revelation, are referring to what took place in the first century after Christ's birth, and that's especially associated and ends with the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Now, there's part of those who believe this view who hold that... Um, who hold that the second part refers to, the last part refers to the second coming of Christ. And I hope these got, didn't get shuffled too badly, or I'm in trouble as I drop my notes. And they are all mixed up. Uh, you may have to help me a little bit back there. But it, it holds that it is the second coming of Christ, but there are those who believe this view, who believe that uh, it was completely fill, fulfilled in the first century and the second coming was a dashed hope. Adventists, very few that I know, believe in this view of Revelation. The third view of Revelation, the third view of Revelation is that of futurism. Futurism believes that the vast majority of Revelation is in the future, as well as the book of Daniel. There are those who believe that the first part was historical, especially the seven letters, although some believe that referred to mostly the churches in the first century. But they believe that from chapter 4 on, it's all future. And the church, because of the secret rapture, escapes most of that. And by the way, the preterist view really believes that there, it came about, there were those in early church fathers who referred to it as being all fulfilled. But for the most part, it came into prominence when... Uh, Luis de Alcazar, at, during the, the Reformation period, used it to refute the teaching of the, Catholic, of the uh, Reformation that the Catholic Church was the Antichrist. Futurism has some people who talked about it in the early church, the early church fathers, but it became, uh, it became something more put together, if you will, when Francisco de De Rib uh, Ribera, Francisco Ribera, during the Reformation, used futurism to show that the Reformation teachers were wrong about the Catholic Church being, the papacy being the Antichrist. And so those two got their start in there, although futurism really gained its momentum. It really gained its momentum uh, in the early 1800s over in Britain. And then it really really took off in the charismatic movement in the 1960s and, and 70s and now has branched out into the evangelical world. And it is by far the most accepted view of the Reformation. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, of Revelation. There is one more view. It is called idealism or as a spiritual view of the, of the Revelation. And the idealism and the spiritual view teaches that there is no real prophetic events that fulfill revelation, that it's really teaching the spiritual truths. It's teaching spiritual principles that we need to apply to our own individual lives and that we need to look at and discover. And as we discover them, we will then see how God will be at work in our lives as well. Spiritual idealism has kind of 
entered in, and, and there are a number of, of Seventh-day Adventists who see the validity of some of these things and have, have started looking at that view more seriously. Now, to, to be honest about it, each one of those views has its difficulties. Each one does. Um, preterism leaves us without any hope, and to deny, to deny the future aspect of the book of Revelation is beyond me. I have a hard time with that. Because Jesus said, I'm going to show you what has been, what is, and what is to come. And he said, I am coming soon. Futurism has some problems in that they try to make it everything being literal. And so you can't just have a, 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 a symbolic stance. Everything has to be exactly, literally fulfilled. And the picture we're going to look at of Jesus today, I really hope that's not a literal picture when we get to heaven, but we'll, you'll see why in a moment. But some of those literal fulfillments are, are difficult to, to look at. And it has to ignore some of the ways God has worked in the history of the, of the past. Historicism has its problems in that very few people agree on all the events and, and the, the symbols and what they mean and, and what they refer to. Even within denominations, including Adventism, you have a hard time getting everybody to agree on what each symbol means. And what happens when the symbol you chose to predict an event turns out to be wrong? And idealism has its problems in that it has to ignore some things that were fulfilled or gloss over it. I want to share with you a statement from Ellen White in Acts of Apostles, page 584. There it is. Acts of Apostles, page 584. It's Revelation's truths are addressed to those living in the last days of this earth's history as well as to those living in the days of John. Do you see historicism or last day, even futurism, along with preterism, present day? Some of the scenes depicted in this prophecy are in the past, preterism. Some are now taking place, historicism. Some bring to view the close of the great conflict, futurism, between the powers of darkness and the prince of heaven. And some reveal the triumphs and joys of the redeemed in the earth made new, idealism, because those who are there with ideal, there in the earth made new have experienced Jesus Christ in their lives and applied the spiritual truths to their lives. Now, Ellen White may not have been aware of the fact that she was addressing issues today that weren't all that highly addressed back then. One of the things that has kept me believing in Ellen White through the years was when I was in seminary and I would look at the various theologians and the commentaries and see what they said about different things. I would read statements especially on salvation and, and steps to Christ and without mentioning any of the different theories of salvation she just watched right down straight through the pathway and cleared all the obstacles and made it so plain and I said this is a lady with a third grade education and so I, I think Ellen White tells us something within the Adventist church today there are, there are those who believing in historicism find that anyone who brings in any other ideas besides historicism have to be wrong because we have to have the truth about what's there and there are those who believe in idealism who say, 
well, we can't go back to historicism. We've got to just deal with the spiritual truths. And I would submit to you this morning that I take the, not submit to you, I will share with you that I take the, the view that there's truth in each one of these views. And we need to be looking for all of them. Because no, not, and we need to be aware of the dangers of some of these views and where they can lead people to and where they have led us to at times. With that in mind about Revelation and how we're to view it, it begins with Pope John writing a letter. And he's writing a letter to the church, seven churches that are in Asia. And here is a map, and, and I don't know if my little pointer will, will reach all the way over there. It doesn't. But you'll see Patmos right about in the middle, just a little left of the middle, just above Kaz. That's the Isle of Patmos. And then you will see the seven churches beginning in order, in the order in which they're written, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Now what's interesting about that, that those cities were on a route, on a route, a trade route. And it was also a mail route. And so John would probably contract somebody from the Isle of Patmos who was going ashore who would conduct business. He would pay him a fee to carry his letter or letters, I'll talk about that in a moment, to each one of these churches, to each one of the churches. And, and what's interesting is that uh, why John chose these letters. John, John chose I mean, these, these uh, cities to write the letter to. There are other more famous churches if you look to the far right, you'll see Antioch and, and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe and Pamphylia. Those are all churches that are mentioned in the book of Acts. Those are churches that, that everybody knew about. Why didn't John write to those churches? Why to these seven churches? Well, maybe it's because they were on the road and therefore they, they had a, um, it was easier to get to them. Maybe it was because Paul had worked in those other churches and John's writing to the churches he was familiar with. That could be true. But I would like to submit to you something more simple than that. As John's writing to these seven churches, two things. First of all, the Spirit was the one who told him who to write to. Secondly, secondly, as we will discover, these churches were literal churches with a literal setting and with literal names with, who had meanings, and as we look at the meanings of the name and the settings for those churches, those churches and those churches alone are the ones that could help us understand God working through history and God working in your life and in mine today. As, as we prepare to look at the seven churches, I, I want to share with you a chart. And don't get all upset about chart and all that kind of thing, but I just want to share with you a chart or, excuse me, they're out of order, my, my notes. Ellen White mentioned that the names of the seven churches are symbolic of the church in different eras of the Christian era. The number seven indicates completeness and in is symbolic of the fact that the messages extend to the end of time, while the symbols used reveal the condition of the church at different periods in the history of the world. To me, that settles it. I, I, have, I can't sit... Other things in the Bible settle it, and as I look at the churches, it settles it. But I see the fact that these messages to the seven churches have greater implication than just the churches of its time. This is somewhat off, off the edges, but you will see there's this chart. At the top is the address, the city, the, uh, to the city, the meaning, the name. There are seven parts to each letter. 
and seven churches across the top. First to Ephesus, and, and through this his, the, the, the years, it's primarily been viewed by, by those who have a historicist view as being from 33 to 100 A.D. It's the church, the early church. Smyrna is the city that throughout history it's looked at as being roughly between 100 to 313 A.D., and it's the church of the early fathers. Pergamum is the church from 313 to 538. It's considered to be the church that is in the, the developing of the Roman Catholic Church. Thyatira is the church in, that uh, was the, of the Catholic Church's rise from 538 to 1798. Sardis is the church of the Reformation from 1798. Now, let me just share one thing before I go any further. These dates are rough. If you've studied anything about intergenerational issues today, you know that while they say that if you were a baby boomer, if you were born between the years of 1946 to I think it's 1964, aspects of baby boomer generation extend somewhat beyond that. If you were born after that and you were part of the postmodern age group, then you were born 64 to I'm not sure what age that goes to, but those of us who were born before 1964, we have parts of postmodernism in us too. And I think it's true of the ch seven churches. You can't get an exact date and say, here's where it was, because it ble bleeds into each other. Do you understand what I'm saying? When you get to, to Philadelphia, brotherly love from 1750 to 1844, that's the time of the Great Awakening in, in England and in America and of the rise of the Advent movement and then Laodicea is from 1844 until the second coming of Christ. And Taylor Bunch's uh, book will help you kind of fill in the chart if you want to get one. It begins, each message begins with a description of Jesus that we're going to look at in a moment that is specifically geared to the needs of that church. Then there's a commendation for what they're doing that they're doing well. And there's two churches that don't have that commendation. Then there's censure and warning about some things they need to look at and take care of. And then there's counsel, almost like a spiritual prescription of how, what they need to do to get well spiritually. Then there's a promise that is given to each church of what God will do for them. And then finally there's an appeal that's the same to every single church to hear the Spirit and to follow the Spirit in what the Spirit says. And so as you study chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Revelation, perhaps that chart will be helpful to you. We will post it on, on our website. But before we get into the seven churches, we need to look at the introduction, the introduction that, that John made, that Jesus himself gave before he even addressed the seven churches. Because if we don't have the introduction down, the rest of Revelation will be a nightmare. And for many people, Revelation has been a nightmare because we've ignored the introduction and the role of the introduction. And one of the things that have led people away from historicism is historicism has focused on the events and the things that are going to take place and has created more fear than assurance. It's created more, more concern than, than, than calm. And so we want to look at, at some of the, the, the introduction, the basic premise of Revelation. Turn with me, if you will, to, to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 4. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 4. And if you uh, have the Pew Bible, it's 1028. 
1028. John says, Grace and peace to you from him who was, who is, and who is to come, and so on. The ultimate result of revelation is that we should experience God's grace and God's peace. If revelation creates more fear and uncertainty, you need to reread the book. Perhaps you need to refocus on what you're reading in the book. The message that is given to the seven churches says, you will receive grace and peace from this message. The second basic premise of Revelation is that God can be trusted. Notice verses 4 and 5. From him who is and who was and who is to come, from the eternal God, God's always been there. You can trust him. From the seven spirits who are before his throne. What, what does that mean? Of course, that's the Holy Spirit. But most people think that like many things in Revelation, the key to this is found in the Old Testament. Found in Revelation, and you don't need to turn to it, you can just listen. Revelation chapter 11, verse 2. Speak about the Spirit and his role and the work he did on the life of Jesus and Jesus' ministry. It says that the Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. This Spirit is the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. Can you trust someone who is wise and understanding? Of course you can. It's the Spirit of counsel. Gives good advice and of might. He's there. He has power that's available to you. It's the spirit of knowledge and the fear or the trust or the reverence for the Lord. And then later on it says that he's also the spirit of righteousness. Can you trust someone who will always do the right thing? And so the premise of Revelation begins with the premise that that we are to have grace and peace. It continues with the premise that we worship a God who can be trusted. And it goes on to say, the reason we can trust him is because it's from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, what's interesting here is what commentators do with the faithful witness. We try to prove that he is, has truth all the time. It's all about truth, and he, he, he will tell the truth. That's true. But you must see this in the context of the other two things it says about Jesus. He is the firstborn of the dead, and he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. What it's telling us about Jesus in these three things is that Jesus' life and ministry was a ministry in which he testified and witnessed to the character of God and to what God is like. He died and he rose again. And he ascended, and when he ascended, he became a king and ruler. What it's telling us is that we can, God can be trusted because he loved us so much. He sent his son to, to live among us, to die for us, and to be resurrected and to be ascended so that he could rule over all because he cares so much about us. Can you trust that kind of God? Of course you can. Of course you can. It doesn't stop there. It says there's an awesome future. And there's an awesome future because according to verse 5, because God loves us, there's an awesome future because he's freed us from our sins. Now, I want you to notice, it doesn't say he will free us. 
It doesn't say he might free us. It says he has freed us from our sins. Past. With an ongoing present. He has freed us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us, not future, past, has made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. We have a future. We are priests and sons and daughters of God. And then he goes on, if you didn't get the point, he says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All of the tribes of the earth, those who don't accept him, will wail on account of him. Even so, come. Even so, amen, it says. But there's an awesome future, mostly because of the sufficiency of God, verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. When he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, it's the first letter of the Greek alphabet, that the last letter of the Greek alphabet, all words are made up in that. What he's saying is, anything you need, I have. I'm everything. Goes on and finishes by saying, I am I am the one who was I, and, and who is and who is to come. I'm the eternal. But then he ends by saying, I am the almighty. And that word almighty in the Hebrew means he is the Lord of hosts. He is the captain of the army. He is the victorious general. He is someone whose power will not be denied. And so the basic premise of Revelation, as you think of all the things it talks about, is you must keep in mind that the end result is grace and peace. That you can trust God as you go through whatever it is we face, that there is an awesome future because Jesus will come again and that God is so sufficient to see us through whatever it takes to the end of time. Can't you see how that makes a difference in how you approach the book of Revelation? In all the symbols of, of beasts and locusts and Wars and rumors of wars and all that kind of thing. I think it makes a huge difference. I think it made you, makes a huge difference. What's interesting about the book of Revelation is its literary format. There was something very popular in the days of John. It was called the play or the drama. If you go over to Greek, you'll see all kinds of amphitheaters in the ruins of them because they had plays in those amphitheaters. And, and guys in the sound booth, you didn't have to, they didn't have to worry about the sound back then and whether it was working or not because the, the stadium were built so well that the sound could project and people by the thousands could hear it. But they were written in the form of a play or a drama. And the, the thing is, the book of Revelation is written that way. Now, now we have something that happens every year. It's called the Academy Awards, where people who are part of the movie industry uh, receive rewards for their accomplishments. But what precedes the Academy Awards is something called the red carpet. And on the red carpet are the actors and all the people who are involved in that thing coming dressed to the hilt. And people are standing there critiquing 
what they are wearing and the color they wear and what it reveals and what it doesn't reveal and, and whether it's appropriate or inappropriate based on what they think should be appropriate. And they can say some very unkind things about what some people wear and some very flattering things. But there's this whole thing about what they're wearing and it's all based on how they look on the outside. It's interesting that before before Jesus begins to introduce the first act of the, of the drama called Revelation, there is a red carpet picture of Jesus. Only it's not a real flattering picture. He's holding seven stars and he's walking amidst the candlesticks and his feet are shining like bronze and his face is lit like the sun so you can't look at it without it hurting but there's the sword coming out of his mouth and he's got a white plain white robe on with a sash around its chest and you look at that picture and you go if that's a literal picture of Jesus I do hope it's something else especially with the sword coming out of his mouth but I want to look for a few moments with you at this picture of Jesus. Because I think this picture of Jesus, I know this picture of Jesus prepares the way for the message and how he's going to relate to the seven churches. The first thing about the picture of Jesus is, is that he's walking in the middle of the candlesticks. He's walking in the middle of the candlesticks. Now, in, in the Old Testament, in the sanctuary service, the candlesticks were there to, to give light for the sanctuary so that people could see what was going on. And Jesus is there in, in the midst of the light of the candlesticks, but we're not left to try and figure out what the candlesticks represent because later, towards the end of this vision of Jesus, it says that the candlesticks are the seven churches, which fits because the seven churches are the churches, that, those through whom God reveals his light to other people. And so Jesus in the, is in the midst of the candlesticks, and, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more in, in a moment. He has on a long white robe. And throughout Scripture, the white robe is a symbol of Christ's righteousness. It's a symbol of, of his perfect purity. It's a symbol of the righteousness that he gives to his people, both in terms of of that which is given to us in terms of our justification, but also how he weaves it into our lives through sanctification. There is also a, a golden sash around his chest. And, and, and there's been a couple suggestions about that. One is, is that, that that sash represents, it, it represents um, the truth because it talks about the belt of truth as the armor of God. But, but I like to think of it perhaps really what it's talking about. Remember the high priest wore something on his chest? Remember what that was? It was an ephod. And on the ephod there were 12 stones, each stone a different color, each stone representing one of the 12 tribes of Israel. It represented his people. And he wore it over his chest because he wore it over his heart. It was the imagery of God's love and care and concern and compassion for his people. And now instead of just stones for, for those representing the Israelites, it's a golden sash over his chest representing God's love for and concern for and care for his people. In this picture of Jesus, 
there is, he has white hair. Now what's interesting is, as you look at this picture of Jesus, it's very similar to the one in Daniel chapter seven. The picture of Jesus is very similar to that of, of God the Father. He has white hair. White being a, a symbol of wisdom and, and, and of age. White being a, a symbol of purity. And so it's a symbol of God knowing what's best for us and, and, and holding us and, and, and watching out for us, willing to share that wisdom with us. And then he has flaming eyes. And the picture that's on the screen doesn't show the flaming eyes too well. Flaming eyes. Every parent should know immediately what that means. It's the look you give your kid when you better not or else. It's the look we sometimes get from our spouses when we're a little bit out of line. Right? It's the look. And it's a look that tells you that they know what's going on. And kids are baffled by that look. How'd you know? And parents just smile and say, we just know. It's the idea of God knowing all about us and loving us anyway. I love the picture that's in Psalm 139 where the psalmist says, oh God, you know me inside out. You know when I rise up, you know when I fall down. If I go to heaven, can I escape you? No. If I go to the deepest part of the sea, you're still there. If I go to the farthest parts of the earth, you're still there. Wherever I go, you are there. You know all about me. And just like parents who know when their kids act up, they also know when their kids do good and their buttons pop and they're so proud of them. His eyes of flaming fire says that, not that he's going to condemn us, but that he's watching out for us and he knows us inside out and loves us anyway. He has feet like bronze, like polished bronze, of all the descriptions and parts of the description of Jesus, this is the one that, that most people scratch their head on. There are, there are a variety of ways. Some people say it's, it's his feet that are strong like burnished bronze and they can trample the sinner underfoot. Well, I believe God will deal with the sinner, but I don't think that's what it's talking about. Others have said that, well, wait a minute, this is, there was two pillars in Solomon's temple, one named Jacob and one named Boaz. And it, it really meant trusting and, and following God. And there are those who believe that it's a symbol of, of David and Solomon, David who had in mind to build this temple and Solomon who had in mind, or who, who did build the temple. I, I have a hard time with that one too. Others have said it's, it's, it's really about uh, looking as, as we, they entered into the sanctuary with these two pillars there, Revelation later describes the tree of life on both sides of, of the river and it joins up at the top and so perhaps this is the tree of life. I'll share with you my thought that I got from an old professor at Andrews University named Douglas Waterhouse who helped me understand Revelation tremendously. Part of the book of Revelation is, is about the sanctuary and what took place. And it's, you have much of the language of the Exodus in, in, the in, in Revelation. And do you remember what God did to lead and guide Israel all through the years while they were in the wilderness? He had the cloud, which we talked about last week, was probably a cloud of angels. 
He had the cloud to guide them. And that cloud was a fiery cloud at night, burnished bronze, in a shelter from the sun during the day. Is it possible that this reference to the feet of bronze is the reference to God leading his people when they go through tough times? I think so. And what is interesting is if you follow the historicist position, the feet of burnished bronze is that 1,260-year wilderness period of Pergamum, or Thyatira, I mean, Thyatira. Let's go on. His voice is like the voice of many waters. Again, most people think this is the voice of power. This is the voice of authority. And there's truth in that. If you hear, if you hear, if you hear power, if you hear a waterfall, you, you sense power. Anybody ever been to Niagara Falls? Last summer, I was at Yosemite, and there was no water coming over Yosemite Falls. And there was something missing. But waterfalls have power. But I think there's something more basic than that. I think the voice of many waters is the voice of calm and peace. I've, I've gone backpacking a lot, as many of you know. And it's much easier to fall asleep near a running brook or a waterfall than it is to fall asleep up at the top where there's nothing going on, no sound whatsoever. Have you ever camped out on a beach and the roar of the surf lulled you to sleep? It's interesting that I think it probably is both. Because the power that's in the water, knowing that power, it kind of presents that, that calming effect. And so Jesus, when he speaks to his people, his voice is like that of many waters, it calms. He holds the seven stars in his hand, and, and at the end it says that those seven stars are the ministers of the churches. And boy, do I like that one. It's the idea of him caring about those who are doing his work and leading his people and guiding them and directing them and holding on to them so that they, won't be let, he, they cannot be let go. It says that in his mouth is the sword, which Hebrews tells us the sword is, is the word of God, and it's this two-edged sword because for those who accept his word, who follow his word, that sword tells them of how they can be saved. For those who reject it, that sword tells them how they will be lost. In the last part of the picture, his face is like the sun. The sun is a symbol of righteousness. It's also a source of life. It's the source of life. And so as we begin to look at the next few weeks at, at, the, at the seven churches, the history of the Christian church, the thing I want to leave you with this morning is this, that which makes the most sense, that which we need to cling to, that which we need to understand is that Jesus, Jesus is dealing with his church and he's in the midst of his church and he's there to help his church, to guide his church, to direct his church because he does it out of love and care. Do you get that at all? Again, Ellen White, in 
Acts of Apostles, page 586. Christ is spoken of as walking in the midst of the golden candlesticks. Thus is symbolized his relation to the churches. He is in constant communication with his people. He knows their true state. He observes their order, their piety, their devotion. Although he is high priest and mediator in the sanctuary above, yet he is represented as walking up and down in the midst of his churches on the earth. With untiring wakefulness and unremitting vigilance, he watches to see whether the light of any of his sentinels is burning dim or going out. If the candlesticks were left to mere human care, the flickering flame would languish and die. But he is the true watchman in the Lord's house, the true warden of the temple courts. Notice this last verse, the last sentence. His continued care and sustaining grace are the source of life and light. His continued care his continued care and sustaining grace is what keeps the churches going. As we look at the seven churches in the next few weeks, let's keep that thought in mind. Jesus Christ is in the midst of the worst church and the best church. Jesus Christ is there for those who are dealing with deception and those who are discovering new truth. Jesus Christ is there for those who have been deceived and for those, for those who are beacons of light. Jesus Christ is there. And regardless of which era of the church history, regardless of where you find yourself in relation to Christ in your own walk with him, Jesus loves you so much that he longs and desires and is willing to be present in your life and in the life of every church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of your son. And while the picture of Jesus may not be picture perfect from a human eye, we know in our hearts it's picture perfect. As we leave this place, may each person know, may each person know that they have been blessed because Jesus desires to walk with them this week. In Jesus' name, amen.